Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sun Up with the Colorado Sun. It's Friday, December 1st. Today, we're talking with Jason Blevins and Jennifer Brown about how the reporters at the Colorado Sun bring you your news. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor. On December 5th, First Bank and Colorado Gives Foundation are proud to present Colorado Gives Day, a one-day online fundraiser for local nonprofits. Since 2010, people just like you have raised $415 million, and over $53 million was donated last year alone. To elevate giving, First Bank and other sponsors have contributed more than $1 million to amplify every donation made, which makes Colorado Gives Day easily the best day to give. So let's start a wave of generosity. Donate at coloradogivesday.org. First Bank. Banking for good. Member FDIC. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this date in 1894, Francis Lowry was born in Denver. He joined the U.S. Army for World War I and trained in aerial reconnaissance. He served in France and operated as a photographer and observer in aircraft. Tragically, he was killed on September 26, 1918, during his 33rd mission when German gunfire downed his plane. Initially buried in France, Lowry's remains were later moved to Colorado in 1921. In his honor, a Colorado National Guard airfield and later Denver's Municipal Terminal was named after him in 1924. This site evolved into Stapleton International Airport in 1929. The 1930s saw the U.S. Army develop an aerial reconnaissance base at the former Agnes Memorial Sanatorium. Named Lowry Field, it expanded to include the Buckley Field, honoring another fallen World War I airman. During World War II, Lowry and Buckley Fields became vital training centers. Post-war, they transitioned to the U.S. Air Force, with Lowry hosting the Air Force Academy and serving as President Eisenhower's base. While Lowry Air Force Base was downgraded in 1994, Buckley continues to operate, known for its distinctive radar systems in Denver skyline. Before we continue, right now you can support the Colorado Sun in a big way during our winter membership drive. When you become a member now through December 17th, Colorado Media Project will provide a one-to-one match to double your impact for a total of $5,000 in matching funds. Join now at coloradosun.com join. Next, our feature story. Hi, Daily Sun Up listeners. My name is Lauren Wynott, and I am a new voice on the podcast. I joined the Colorado Sun a few months ago to manage our membership program. Having previously been a Colorado Sun reader and Sun Up listener, and not being from the journalist world at all, I have really enjoyed learning about how a newsroom, and the Sun in particular, really works behind the scenes. So today I'm joined by some voices you will likely recognize, Jason Blevins and Jennifer Brown. I'm going to be asking them a few questions about their experience at The Sun and as reporters, and hopefully give you all a glimpse behind the scenes of The Colorado Sun. Can you tell us a little bit about working for The Sun in general? What does the day in the life look like for you? And what about The Sun might listeners not know? So Jason, we'll start with you. Um, Yes, we have, what what are we at, 27 different folks all over on this team, reporters, presentation, folks on business and revenue, photographers, and a whole stable of freelancers. And we get together every week, Monday morning, kind of hammer out a plan. We have a bunch of shared online documents and kind of work through, uh, you know, all remotely. We don't really have an office. I guess we do. We've only been there a couple times, Um, but there are... 
you know, some, some folks who go into office, but most of us, I think are remote working from home. Um, and out in the field, always kind of traveling. I, I try to usually take a trip once a week, get out, chat with folks, put some miles on the Toyotas and sort of see where we, uh, where we are at out there. Um, I think everyone at the car son knows that, you know, we're not necessarily office bound. We not necessarily glued to a newsroom. We're out, you know, sort of in our communities, working with our communities and, you know, sort of seeing a lot of people. And I think that informs a lot of our reporting. I think that's evident in a lot of our reporting and that uh, we're kind of out and about. Thanks. And Jen, uh, anything to add to that? Sure. I would just say that, you know, working at The Sun is really the the most collaborative newsroom I've ever been in. And, you know, like Jason said, we don't see each other in real life all that often, although I have been to the office a lot more than twice because it's a lot closer to me. But, you know, we try to get out in community and talk to people all over Colorado. We really have a goal of being statewide and not covering just the news that's coming out of Denver or just Colorado Springs. And, you know, we'll travel. You know, recently I went way out to Los Animas. So it was like, you know, six hours round trip. But we really thought it was important to to see up close, you know, the homeless recovery center that they have down there where they, you know, take people out of the cities who are living outside and, and um, give them dorms in this old army fort. Um, so we do stuff like that quite regularly. And we all, you know, we have editors and reporters and, you know, graphics people and photographers, obviously. But I think we all, you know, at the core of it, we're all just journalists and, you know, anybody can hop in and help edit anybody else's story or, you know, offer tips. And um, it's just a really collaborative place. Can you explain more about how you find a story and, and just how all that works in general? Like I said, I've been out here for a, a number of years covering the Western Slope, and I have a pretty robust list of uh, sources. And most of my stories come from people calling me and saying, hey, you should check this out, or texting me or emailing me. And then I also regularly read um the local papers crestview paper aspen papers bail papers and i get ideas one of the cool things about my job is that i'm able to sort of view the western so holistically um whereas a lot of these smaller town papers obviously are focused on their own community but sometimes it's it's nice to be able to tie together common issues, challenges, opportunities that you see in some of these mountain towns and say, hey, wow, this is, you know, this is an issue that's spread across an entire region. It is not just an Aspen issue, not just a Vail, Crested Butte, Telluride issue. So that's one thing I kind of, I try to focus on is finding commonalities that are spread across the entire region and, and bringing that together into a story to where everybody can Anyone on the Western Slope should be able to read a Colorado Sun story and, and find some connection to what's going on in their own community. That's something I, I try to strive for. I, I hope that's a that's kind of an overarching mission of uh, our journalism at the Colorado Sun is really sharing and exposing things that, that can bring us together. I, I couldn't agree more with everything that Jason said, and he does an awesome job really tying together, you know, in the last couple years, the 
the, all the stories of the housing crisis, you know, they're not just people paying rent in Denver, but all the things that our mountain communities and rural areas are are going through in that, you know, shared experience of that. And and I would just add, you know, like Jason, you know, I've been covering the same areas for so long that I have a lot of sources who reach out to me that are, you know, work for nonprofits or their parents with kids who have disabilities or, you know, they are involved in some way in the foster care system and they're familiar with stories I've written about. So they'll they'll reach out in some way and and share what's happening to them. Um, and then, you know, story ideas come in all kinds of ways, right? Um, it's about being curious journalists, you know, things that are on our minds or that we see that stand out. Usually other people want to know more about as well. And I was thinking about recently, you know, there was a line in one of our political stories about the Libertarian Party and how they have raw milk legalization on their platform. And it just made me think like, why that? Is it really hard to get raw milk around here? Um, and so it, it ended up that um, Olivia Sun, a photographer, and I were went down past Pueblo to a a raw milk dairy, you know, we found out people are on these like huge waiting lists to get unpasteurized milk. And, you know, that it's illegal in Colorado unless you own part of a cow and just the hoops that people jump through to do that. And, you know, as we were reporting the story that somehow the governor's office heard about it and reached out and was like, hey, the governor really wants to legalize um, raw milk. So it, it was a popular story with folks because there's strong opinions on on both sides. And I wanted to mention too, right now we're in the middle of a pretty cool project called High Cost of Colorado. And this is just examining, you know, all the ways in which inflation is hurting Coloradans, like from housing prices, like I mentioned, but even things like how much it costs to get into Rocky Mountain National Park today. And really, we just came up with this idea, you know, mostly our fellow reporter, Michael Booth, um, because we are annoyed about these things, too. You know, we're regular people going to the grocery store being like, um, why does this cost so much? Or, you know, why is this hiking permit so much? And so we're really like delving all, into all these issues over the next few months and trying to figure out solutions too. like how do we all collectively deal with this. Is there a particular story that you've produced at The Sun that makes you proud to be a journalist and, and proud to be at The Sun? Sure, all of them. I've really enjoyed watching the uh, the high cost rollout. I've, I've not really been involved in that, but um, as someone who really feels the pain of inflation and everything up here in these mountain towns is just so expensive. It's ridiculous. And it really hits home and I've had a lot of people coming up saying, man, they really appreciate this high cost stuff. It, you know, open their eyes to, again, some of the shared burdens we all carry for Colorado in our old newsroom there at the Denver Post. We had that, uh, what was it, big tis a privilege, right? Um, over the, as soon as you walked in, tis a privilege to w live in Colorado. And that's something I think every Coloradan um, shares, but at the same time, we got to grind it out a little harder than maybe some other folks around the country because it's just so dang pricey up here. 
but yeah, I, I would definitely point to that. That is something that um, resonates, I think, with with all readers, and it's something that both Michael and Jen and everybody, Parker, when you guys are, are jumping in there, you have this real appreciation for what's going on with your readers. I feel like a lot of journalism can get into the sort of, here's something you should know about, and I'm going to tell you about it. Um, whereas here's something we're all feeling, and it, it's it's something that we're, we're all enduring together. And again, it, it kind of brings us up into that same boat saying, yeah, how can we get around this? And and that is, I think, really resonated with readers. And Michael and Jed have a just an unwavering focus on readers, which is um, something that I'm just proud to be part of, proud to just read it and something that I'm associated with. And I'm going to tell about some of Jason's stories since he skipped that part. But um, he has a way of, you know, he understands so much about the outdoors and, you know, all the extreme sports that Coloradans do and um, just has a way of jumping out there like on the mountain or on the ski slope with people to tell these stories like as if you're with him. And I always go back to, you know, these stories are a couple years old, but they've been sprinkled throughout um, Jason's time at the Sun and their stories of surviving really horrible accidents or being lost in the woods or, you know, a climbing expedition. Um, and they're just gripping. So I would recommend anyone uh, Google those because they're awesome. Um, I, I think one that I'm most proud of that I worked on recently was a project we did with um, jointly with Nine News. And, you know, it really is I love investigative stories and especially when they're about humanity and, and real people and what they're going through. And and so we looked at data and police records and, you know, tales of foster kids who are running away every day from these residential treatment centers where they get placed. And we're proud of it at the Sun because it caught the attention of the the legislature and, you know, they ordered a review of what's going on and, you know, that's ongoing and looking into how Colorado could do better to protect these kids. And I'm proud of all the work we do at The Sun, but, you know, when we can affect change so that, you know, the most vulnerable people might get some help or at least shine a light on what they're going through, um, that really means the most to me. Speaking of, so when our readers and listeners hear or read us on story, they are seeing the final results of what is often weeks, months, or even years of research and reporting. During the time you are producing a story, you're traveling all over Colorado and beyond, interviewing people and digging into the information. And I assume you found yourself in some interesting situations. So can you tell us a little bit about an experience you've had while working at The Sun, what it takes to, to bring them a story? All right. This is an embarrassing story, but it is quite funny and I'll never forget it. I, for like months, years, really, like many of us at the Sun had always wanted to do a story about wild ice skating, which, you know, is this small fraction of the community who will take their figure skates or hockey skates or whatever and climb way up into the Rocky Mountains in the dead of winter and find, you know, a frozen lake or pond to skate on. And, you know, I wanted to write about it because, you know, for one thing, that's super awesome, but also dangerous. Like you can't just 
go up there and do it as someone without any training. Um, so we found this woman um, who does it fairly regularly, and we were trying to link up with her, uh, the photographer, Hugh, Carrie, and I, to go out one day. And a lot of times it fell through or the ice wasn't thick enough or it had snowed too much on the ice so she couldn't go. And then last minute, we were able to join her to go up to uh, Long's Peak Trailhead um, and hike into Chasm Lake, which some of you might have been to. But you know, and I love hiking and I love the outdoors and I even love winter hiking, but I got myself in over my head and I was with, you know, three people, including our photographer who are like mountain goats. And we ended up going off trail to climb down to this little pond and going down was fine. But then on the way up, I think I'm a bit afraid of heights. It seems to get worse all the time. And we were crawling up and on this like snow covered, pretty steep hillside. And um, I was all good if I didn't look down and I was using my spikes to to grab the ground. And, and Hugh was in front of me, coaxing me along and showing me which rock to use for my foot. And then we ran out of rocks and it was just like really slick snow, icy snow. And it was probably about like 12 feet of it to climb through before you could reach back to the the actual trail. And I completely froze. I would not go. Um, Hugh was trying to tell me what to do and he had to hike back down and get in front of me. And I turned at one point, so I was facing downhill. So he was basically sternly warning me that I was going to end up sliding down that hill on my butt and like break something or die if I didn't turn around and start crawling up and that, of course, he stopped to take my picture during that. So that was embarrassing. But um, we ended up side scooting out of there. I refused to go up and we we side scooted across the hill and I was able to find some more rocks. And when we got to the top, like I actually got a few tears in my eyes and hugged Hugh. I was <laughs> like, thank you for saving my life. And then I told this story to my son, colleagues at our meeting the next Monday and as I when I finished telling it he was like eh, it was no big deal she she was never gonna die or anything and I was like dude I really was like let me tell the story but yeah it was the story turned out great his photos were awesome and I'm just glad that I did slide down and really wreck myself uh, Jason do you have any stories that are similar to Jen they're also with you you should probably have on, he could have his own theme for this uh, podcast on dangerous places Hugh has brought you. Um, yeah, Hugh and I went and did Dolores River, I guess a few months ago, or the, earlier this spring, and it was running really high. I think it was 900% above normal. Um, I'd done it a few times and I was going to stand up paddleboard. It's class two, maybe three, couple spots. Um, easy, easy paddle. But that high, there were some challenges that I did not anticipate. And I was, uh, let's just say, fully engaged for the entirety of the trip. And it was not a casual trip. It was a good good story on sort of the big boom flows for the Dolores as it comes online with a bunch of conservation efforts around that whole region. Incredible, incredible canyon, super remote. Um, I think it was running over 3,000 CFS, 4,000 CFS, really high. 
and uh, super challenging and went back a couple weeks later for a little more color and reporting. And um, we were involved in a, not a really a rescue, but we witnessed a rescue of a, of a gentleman who died in the river that day. Um, it was pretty intense. That sort of bring it all home. I don't think I will go stand up paddleboarding on the Dolores River at 4,000 CFS again. I'd much rather be in a kayak. But it was uh, a little little more than I probably bit off, but that's only one. There are a lot more of those stories out there for sure. But generally, something is unexpected that usually makes for a better story. Right, Jen? That's true. And I'm glad to hear you won't be on your stand-up paddleboard anymore in there because he usually doesn't listen when I tell him to tone it down and not try to die on assignment. (laughs) Well, thank you both for sharing. I really appreciate it. And I think our listeners will appreciate hearing a little bit more about, you know, what goes on when you all are reporting um, in both of your cases. I think your stories of being out in the wild and facing the elements. It's fascinating and not what a lot of people get to experience in their day-to-day jobs. So um, thank you for sharing. And uh, listeners, if you want to support our work now through December 17th, we are hosting our winter membership drive where new and upgrading members will have their membership doubled thanks to a grant from Colorado Media Project who is matching the first $5,000 we bring in in membership. So you can join today at coloradosun.com slash join. And we just thank all of you for uh, reading and listening and supporting our work. So thank you and have a great weekend. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. A federal grand jury has indicted two women on allegations they ran a title company that stole $4.5 million from an investment group planning a resort village at the Argo Mill in Idaho Springs. Cherishina McGee and Sandra Bacon are facing charges they took $14.8 million in escrow deposits in 2019 and 2020 from 10 individuals and businesses. A U.S. District Court judge in September 2022 awarded the Argo Investment Group $8.7 million in a civil case against McGee, 47, and Bacon, 71, ruling the two purposely defrauded the plaintiffs and covered up their fraud. Proponents of big game hunting in Colorado have asked the state Supreme Court to reject a proposed ballot initiative that would ask voters next year to approve a statewide ban on hunting mountain lions, bobcats, and Canada lynx. The petition argues the ballot question is misleading, and the Colorado Secretary of State's office made mistakes when it approved the initiative for the ballot. People opposed to such hunting filed a separate measure last week that would bar the use of traps, dogs, and electronic calls in wildcat hunts. It would also prevent so-called trophy hunting of wildcats. Colorado Parks and Wildlife says it will begin the process of bringing gray wolves from Oregon to Colorado on December 8th before releasing them on the western slope later this month. By March, the agency hopes to have 10 to 15 new wolves roaming the landscape. CPW is distributing a five-page virtual leaflet with tips for ranchers on how to live with wolves ahead of what will likely be one of the most controversial days in Colorado wildlife history. The release comes roughly three years after voters approved the wolf reintroduction in a 2020 ballot initiative. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. I'm Lauren Wynott, Director of Membership at the Colorado Sun. I came to work at the Sun because quality, trustworthy journalism is important. As a reader and listener, I find the Sun to be a breath of fresh air. 
The journalists tell Colorado stories that keep me informed, entertained, and engaged. If you also trust the Sun for your news, join me as a member at coloradosun.com slash join. Your support helps to bring you and other Coloradans the news you deserve. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you.